0: The goal today is to look at the resurrection through the writings of the apostle Paul. And this is important because the idea is that the resurrection of Jesus wasn't sort of just this discrete event that kind of began and end and ended and then it was over and then everybody said, "Well, okay, yes, he must really be the son of God. Okay, that just proves something." But actually the resurrection is itself categorizes and characterizes everything that happens after it in the Christian life. Everything from that point on really is about the resurrection. One one famous Lutheran scholar was asked to summarize the gospel in one sentence, and he said, "That's easy." He said, "He is risen." End of story. He is risen. By the way, did you notice our 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 banners here? And I put those up on the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter. Um, and I, I was worried about a schism in the church because I didn't know what order to put them in. I, most of us read from left to right, you know? So, just for a show of hands, out of curiosity, just weird curiosity on my part, what do you prefer? Alleluia, He is risen, or He is risen, Alleluia? See, did it, who likes the first, who likes how it is now? And you have to have an opinion. Nobody cannot raise it. Who like? Okay. Who would rather have it say, "He is risen"? Alleluia. See, I knew it. It's like half and half. There's no pleasing anyone. All right. There's no pleasing everyone. I should. I got that wrong. There's no pleasing everyone. So stop trying. And maybe there's no right or wrong. They're both right. They're both right. By the way, Alleluia simply means praise the Lord. Right. So you could say that anywhere at any time. We could maybe put one in the middle and have an Alleluia on the other side, either side. So, but but that's what this scholar said. He is risen. He said he is risen. Christ is risen. Everything else is commentary. How do you like that? He is risen, or Christ is risen. Everything else is commentary. Now, there's more to the gospel than that, right? Because you have to get to the point where. What was he risen from, and why, was he, why did he need to be raised, and why did he die? But if you're going to try to do a, a thing where you put the whole gospel in a sentence, you can't go too far wrong by just saying, he is risen. The rest is commentary. But Paul says that the resurrection is everything, and we talked about this last week. He said, if Christ is not raised then our hope is in vain, our faith is futile. And this theme of futility is going to come up several times in today's thing. So I want you to keep sort of a mental note that there is some futility in our faith if Christ is not raised. It's just kind of empty. But there's also futility and frustration in this world as a result of human sin. And these things are kind of related to each other. Um, What Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, uh, your your faith is in vain, or your faith is empty, is the Greek word kenos. kainos it means empty. It's an adjective. There's also a verb form of it, which is kenoo, and that means to empty oneself. This is the word that's used in Philippians chapter 2 about Christ, that he empties himself or he becomes nothing to the point of death, even death on the cross, so that then God could highly raise him and highly exalt him. And so there's some themes that I'm going to try to pull together here about futility, emptiness, meaninglessness, even foolishness, and God's antidote to the futility and frustration of the world we'll find in the resurrection. Really exciting stuff. Okay, so for, for before we get to our reading, I want to note two passages that are very important in our understanding. The first is one that you probably know. It's from Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. And that's the point at which Adam and Eve have been expelled from the garden. And as a sign of the broken relationship between them and God, God says the creation has now changed. The world that you occupy is not this idyllic garden anymore where the food just kind of falls out of the tree into your lap almost. But you're going to have to work hard to get any kind of produce to come out of the ground. The ground will become hard. Uh, Thorns and, and, and thistles and things like that will come up and it will be difficult by the sweat of your brow, it says. You will work the land. And I'll tell you, there was a family that came to the church that I served in Iowa. It was, a, it was a farming community. They had the farm just north of the church, or they used to, I should say. And for whatever reason, wind patterns, I don't really know. Their farm at one point, about 10 years before I got there, got overrun with these what are called Canadian thistles. And they're about this tall. They have a beautiful... Semi-beautiful purple flower at the top of it, although it's all spiky. And these things just covered their land so much that it it became untenable for them to make any money at farming. They could still farm, they could still harvest, but the, the interplay of these weeds, thorns, in their field cut down their yields. They would have to spend a lot of money on herbicides to kill these. And that money they spent on that would eat up all the profits that they would get from any kind of harvest. And so they looked at the real potential that they could farm every year and lose money every every year while they were doing it. That's futility. You have to stop. And it broke their hearts because these are people who grow up with farming in their DNA. And to give up on a farm is is both like the death of a dream, but also almost like a denial of who you are. And when they talked about how their farm got overrun by these thorns, it's just like the, the curse, isn't it? By the sweat of your brow, you'll work the ground and the thorns will come up. The sadness, as they talked about having to sell their farm just to pay back all the debts they incurred trying to farm it. It was really palpable. So she became a nurse, and he became a construction foreman. And he was really good at it. Like, he, like they were putting up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, they were putting up one of the biggest sporting goods stores I had ever seen. And he was the man in charge of the whole construction project. It's really funny. So there is resurrection even of careers after being a farmer. The other people, one other guy in the the church was an attorney, and he made $400 an hour, and that's what enabled him to be a farmer on the side and lose money on his farm. So it really is like a hobby farm. Like, oh, that's my hobby. I lose money at this. I just love it so much. Farming, you know? It's hard. Everyone in the church had a different job besides farming, just like everybody in the church had fallen off a horse at once. By the way, I was told I I was too negative on horses. I'm sorry. I love horses. It's just they're... They're generally not that valuable in the grand scheme of things, but that's that. okay. Well, it's the same idea. Okay, I also do zip. All right, so um, I want to add to that that idea that the ground, the the creation changed as a result of broken relationship with God the Father. In Genesis chapter 3. And Paul picks up that theme in, Genesis, uh, in Romans chapter 1. And he uses re, uh, Romans chapter 1 to frame the whole reason why we need justification. Why we need salvation in Jesus Christ. Is because we're going to start repairing this relationship that has been broken with God. And what he says in, in Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read it to you. Look at, Turn back to Romans 1 verse 20. And this is going to sort of introduce our reading from Romans chapter 8. And this is what it says in Romans 1:20, and we'll go through 23. It says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. What he's saying is... the the universe and the earth that God created is a testimony to God's power and his quality and, his, and who he is, and it's apparent for everyone to see. And those who fail to see it for what they are, what it is, they stand condemned on some level because they're without excuse. And, and I would say this is true. You just look at the stars at night. Uh, you look at the animals, the the rosebush in our backyard, and you say, God's handiwork is all over this thing. We cannot attribute this to something else. I don't think we can. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. Pay attention to this word. Futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fool and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, created images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And so it goes on even further to describe their confusion about themselves. And Paul says that they worshipped the creature rather than the creator who made it. And this is a fundamental error. And he's really talking about Adam and Eve. They worshipped their own appetite, they worshiped their own sense that they could become an equal with God instead of worshiping God in obedience and so this whole bitter fruit that planted a seed and has been growing ever since paul is addressing here in romans chapter 1 and he's framing in romans chapter 1 the whole reason why he's writing the rest of the book is how are we going to undo this curse of creation and how are we going to undo that humans have the wrong idea about creation that they're worshiping the creation and the creature rather than the creator who made it all. And they are futile and foolish in their thinking. So, what we now understand is that Christ dying and being raised again is the beginning of God turning all of this back. And, and I would say it hasn't all happened yet, right? Because have you noticed the earth isn't a garden yet? It isn't. We'll get to that. There's some, there's some gross parts of the earth, and there's some beautiful parts of the earth. We were just in Yosemite. It seems like it hasn't been touched there yet. Well, it has. There's roads and things like that. But. So something's yet to happen in the earth, but I would say something has already happened and is yet happening and is continuing to happen, and all of this, Paul will say, is resolved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why the resurrection is so important. So with that introduction, I want us to go ahead and look at our reading. You can read along with me if you want. Romans 8, chapter 18 through 39. That's on page 1118. So here we go. Verse 18. Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all, who hopes for what he already has. But if we hope for what we yet do not have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans, That words cannot express. And he who searches our heart knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called, and those He called, He also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to invite you to go back right to the beginning of our reading. Go ahead and take a look at Romans 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 18. And I'm going to turn there in my Bible, even though I also have it in my manuscript here, so that I can go back and forth easily. Corinthians, Acts... All right. So this is what he writes. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation. And I think that's true, right? This sense that the creation is waiting. It's waiting for this curse to be lifted, it's waiting to be made into a whole place. And it's it says, in a way that is difficult to understand, did you, any of you catch this? It's waiting in expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Does anyone like say to yourself, well, what does that mean? I sure did. I was reading this. Who? Who? Who are these sons of God? Well, there's two choices. One is, it's us. Okay? One is, as children, we, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we become the children of God. And we're revealed in the last days as people who are chosen and elected and taken into God's presence. And so it could be that the earth is waiting for us to be revealed. Or the sons of God in this context, and sometimes it means this, are the angelic beings who will be on some sort of parade on the last day. We don't know. It doesn't really matter in this case because that's not the point of this. The point is that the earth is looking forward. The creation of God is looking forward for something in the future. It's waiting for it in expectation. It's waiting for it in hope. And so to explain that a little bit more, um, we have this sense that, that because of the fall of, of Adam and Eve, the earth is, is in a state of frustration. It's almost stuck, Right? It's stuck in this curse, not being able to provide for us the way God designed it to in the first place. And so that's a sign of our broken relationship with God. Now, already we see that there's a hint of the resurrection of Jesus in here, okay? Because we have an old and broken and frustrated thing that is going to be made new and whole And full of purpose. And so Paul has these really high hopes for the creation. It's going to be um, liberated from the bondage of decay. And instead instead of being in decay, it's going to be brought into glorious freedom. So look at verse 20. And I find this is very interesting because you you see the word creation shows up in verse 19. The word creation shows up in verse 20. The word creation shows up in verse 21. The word creation shows up in verse 22. What do you think is going on here? Paul is very, and and so does the resurrection. Paul is saying that the resurrection matters for the creation of of everything, what, what God has made. So look at verse 20 again. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, as if it had a choice, but by the will of him who subjected it. That's God. That's God because he's saying this is a sign of the broken relationship. But look at verse 21. The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And so from this I take it that that God isn't really done With the physical world. Like on one level, it's not like God created the world and set it spinning and put the moon in an orbit around it and put us all in orbit around the sun and then just said, okay, that was interesting. And he steps back on his rocking chair and just sort of watches the cosmos spin. And that's very interesting. No, God is still engaged in the world. God is still engaged in creation. He's still involved. He's still involved with us. But beyond that, there's this sense that the creation is important to God, even in the future, and God's going to do something amazing with it in the future. So when I grew up, I grew up Lutheran, that, that makes no difference, really, you probably grew up this way, too, even if you grew up something else, some other kind of Christian is, when we talked about heaven in my family, we were going to go to heaven when we died, that's great news, we were like sometimes like, Mama, Papa, where is heaven? And they're like, it's up there somewhere, you know. Would you take a spaceship there? Well, not exactly. It's just, it's like maybe this floating city in the sky that's shaped like a giant cube and the streets are made out of gold. And do you know what I'm talking about? This is from Revelation, right? And it's, it's somewhere else. It's like in the clouds. It's, it, maybe it's not a physical place, if you can understand that, children. That's what they, my parents would say to us, you know. They didn't have a very good answer, right? Just heaven was someplace else. And it was a great place. Not that it's a bad place. It's just... They couldn't define it. But as you look at passages like this and some more modern scholars like N.T. Wright have been trying to figure this out, there's actually this sense that God's creation is so important to God. It's such an extension of who he is. It's such a manifestation of his own character that heaven may actually be right here in the future. This planet this frustrated, futile, broken, decaying planet will itself be resurrected and heaven will be here on earth. You don't have to agree with that. I'm not sure I know. I'm, this is what they're saying, but this is where a passage like this is pointing me, okay? That heaven is actually here on earth and that things are going to get redeemed here and that God is going to set up rain here and when we talk about going to heaven, it really means we're not going very far at all. I can just say, we're just staying where we are, and heaven is, just, uh, is going to happen to the earth. And so some really great pl- things are going to happen, like New Jersey is going to look nice. It really will be the garden state. Right now, not so much. But... Someday, New Jersey is going to be awesome. And I and I wonder to myself, well, where do I want to live if I have a choice? If God, unless God assigns addresses to us, well, what if He says you're free? Says freedom here. Where would I live? Would I live in the redwoods? Maybe. Would I live in the mountains of Arizona? Maybe. Would I go to Hawaii? Eh, I'm tired of Hawaii. I am. I, I don't like it there anymore. It's so confined. In Hawaii, that's true. So everybody, and I think that's the great thing. Everybody might have a different answer. Call it out. Where would you live in heaven? Anyone? Hawaii? Yeah. Colorado. Colorado there we go. In a redeemed world, a resurrected earth. Anywhere would be beautiful, theoretically. California is nice if it wasn't so crowded. Do you think the prices might go down? <laughs> or will there be no money in heaven? Acts chapter four. Everybody shared everything. It might happen there too. The rents—the rents are going to go down. That's heaven. Hey. Sorry for you for those of you who bought a house at a really high price. You're going to be underwater. Tough luck. That's how it goes. All right. We got lost. But the Lord will find us. Here's what it says. Even New Jersey will become a paradise. That's what right there. <laughs> so i the next after this. So there's more, okay? So it's not just that the resurrection, the cre- not just that the creation is resurrected, but actually our misunderstandings around creation will start to be resurrected, okay? What does Paul say is really the problem? How does he frame all of Romans? We worship the creature rather than the Creator who made the creature. We confuse ourselves for God. We practice idolatry. All of that means idolatry. How would you like to live in a world without idolatry? I mean, I could, I could have a mental exercise of that about that for an hour of what our world would look like without idolatry. Well, basically, it would look like heaven, wouldn't it? Right? That's the idea. It would be so great. It would be the end of idolatry. How much better would it be? Paul writes in chapter 1 about also about futile thinking and foolish hearts. This is what he writes. In the futility of their minds, in the foolishness of their minds, they do these things, this misapprehension, this misunderstanding about the correct relationship between the creature and the creator. And this all gets reversed in the resurrection. The resurrection is what undoes all, undoes all this, or undoes all this, right. So, I want you to look at how all these concepts go together. Um, In my reading, I I feel like this was, was kind of forming, okay? Is that the creation is bound up in frustration and futility. We have weeds that destroy farms. Humans are bound up in foolishness and futility They don't know who they are and they don't know who God is. They may mistake other creatures for the true creators. And all of this is emptiness, as if the real meaningful content of all that God has done has been emptied out of the world and out of us. And we're living in anticipation and expectation and eagerly waiting for something to change. And God's response is that Jesus himself has to in some way become this thing that the world is so that he can take it away. And so Philippians tells us that Jesus empties himself. And he takes on all of this into himself. And God then exalts him and raises him from the dead and puts him at the right hand of God. And all every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And that's the Resurrection. Is this resurrection not just of the earth, not just of our bodies, but of our confusion, our foolishness, our futility, and our frustration? All changes. I'm ex- excited about this. It's really great. I mean, do you see how the resurrection is more than just somebody came back from the dead? It's a whole lot more. The resurrection is the change in creation, it's a change in us, it's a change in our minds, it's a change in this world. Without the resurrection especially, we of all people are the most to be pitied. Because then our faith would be futile and vain and empty. That's what that means, kinos. Now, we have a connection with creation. I think this is important. You live in this world. You need it. You need the air that is circling this planet and being held in place by its gravity. Also, do you know there's a magnetic Field that's produced by the core of our planet. It's an iron core. It's extremely hot. It's spinning down there, way down there, and is creating a gigantic magnetic field. Did you know this? Some of you? Yeah. Did you know that that's saving our lives every second? Without that magnetic field, these intense solar winds that come from the sun at all times would very quickly strip away our entire atmosphere. Thank you, God. (laughs) You're connected to this world. You need this world. That's a little science bit for you, God. You'll love it, right? And why is the Earth, why is the core molten like that? Well, it was hot a long time ago, but it's being kept hot by our moon, which is also unusual in its size and its orbit around our planet. There aren't any other planets like this with the moon quite like this. Without that moon stretching, our planet with its tidal forces, that core might have cooled off a lot earlier. Isn't this interesting? Thank God for the moon. Now where did the moon come from? (laughs) George will tell. If you want to know, George will tell you afterwards. There might have been another planet called Theia that hit the earth about two billion years ago and created our moon. Who knows? By the way, this was first postulated by a, an astronomer at the University of Arizona, where I went, the, the, the matter, back in 1980. It was considered revolutionary at the time. Now it's considered to be probably right. Praise God. Okay. It has nothing to do with anything. We have a connection to the creation, not just because you're living on this planet, breathing the air, eating the food that it produces. But look at verse 22. This is what Paul says. We know that the whole... You know, Ben, you said this and in, in, in Ben was in adult forum and he's like, how are we... What did you say? It's like, it seems like we're connected to the creation. and I'm like, exactly. That's the main point. It's so, infi- so insightful. Look at verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time waiting for its redemption. Now, we had a baby come and it... It took like 36 hours. That's a long time. Too long. Oh, dear Lord. We made it. Praise God for George. Hey, George. You were, you were late. But it, Yes. But that's a really... Paul is good with analogies. Somebody waiting for a child to be born... Is eager anticipation, isn't it? Waiting for that moment. How long does it take? Lucky people have it in just a few hours. Others, not so much, right? So the, the creation has been groaning right up to the present time. But not only so, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The earth, the creation, is waiting in anticipation for the resurrection to be fully realized so that it can be redeemed and freed and liberated. And at the same time, we do too. We're connected to this creation, and the resurrection is changing all of us. It's sending us into this place of hope, but also anticipation. It's a long time coming. So we're living, I would say, in anticipation or expectation, maybe even frustrated and sometimes seemingly futile anticipation of what God is going to do. But what does Paul say? There's hope. There's hope yet that this is going to happen because Christ himself was raised. And if Christ is raised, then we can hope for it too. The resurrection is coming for us. It's our adoption as God's children and the redemption of our bodies. And so what I want to end with is actually to ask ourselves, yes, we have the resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead. Praise God. Alleluia. He is risen. But what does it mean? What does it mean for us, right? So it means more than that you're going to go to heaven when you die. Let's just get that out of the way. You will go to heaven when you die. Praise God. And let's not minimize that. That's really great. But there's more than that. There's more than that. Okay? The resurrection is such a big event that it spills out into everything that God has done and it spills out into everything that God has made. It touches everything that God has been involved with. One of the things it means, the resurrection, is it means that the consequences of sin will be unwound. Okay, The consequence of sin, a broken relationship with God, this futile and frustrated earth full of thorns and difficulty, that's going to get undone. And New Jersey will be a great place again someday, right? So that's, the consequences of sin are going to get unwound. And our foolishness, our misapprehension about creatures and creators, that's going to get replaced by wisdom. God is going to resurrect even our own brains. And we receive this world as God's gift to us, and we long for the day of its full redemption. I decided as I was preparing this, that this afternoon I was really actually going to go outside and look at what God has in this world. And you don't have to look far. We have a nice garden here. You could actually go out here afterwards. You could just go through this door and go out the other door if you want. It's your free choice. You can go out and look at some of the gardens outside. Look at what God has made. This is just a tiny foretaste, these plants and flowers and the birds that fly around them and the bees that are pollinating them. This is just a tiny foretaste of the redeemed world. And if God can put this much beauty in a broken world, how much more beauty will there be in the resurrected world? So I'm gonna encourage you to go out this afternoon and look at what God has made and say, if God can redeem this to an even greater thing, what does the resurrection mean? For me? What will he change in me? What foolishness will he replace with wisdom? What futility will he replace with purpose? Right? There's two other things that get redeemed. We'll spend some other time, some other day, talking about them, but I'll just mention them now. Is that our relationships get redeemed and resurrected too? Vertical relationship, our relationship with God we'll see a resurrection. Horizontal. Our relationships with each other will see a resurrection. Forgiveness can be offered and received. And we live in hope. And I'm going to end with this. This is what he says in verse 24, and then I'll skip ahead to verse 32. For in this hope, this hope of the resurrection, this hope of the redemption of creation, this hope in the redemption and liberation of ourselves, In this hope, we were saved. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is risen. Thank you that all creation and all of us are waiting yet to be redeemed completely by you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.